Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, how are we? Doing well? Good. We're continuing in a series through the book of Daniel that we started last week. So if you, have, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. It's kind of a hard book to find. Use your table of contents. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 because it's week 2. And as you're uh, turning there, let's just kind of review. Uh, last week we learned that the book of Daniel is way more than just a collection of kids' stories that go on flannel grass and is taught in Sunday school. It's really a handbook, a game plan of how to be faithful and how to live purposefully and obediently in the midst of a hostile culture. It's how to be faithful and purposeful in the midst of a culture that doesn't like God and doesn't like his followers. And what we saw is that Daniel and his three friends who were from Jerusalem, uh, that city was overtaken by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They were deported, relocated. They went through this three-year process of being re-educated, being renamed. Uh, they, They felt all this immense pressure from 100 different ways to leave behind their old way of life and their God and to take on their new Babylonian way of life and to worship the the gods of Babylon. But we learned that it came to a certain point where they drew a line in the sand and they said no. Uh, They said we will not participate. We will not defile ourselves. They stepped up in costly obedience. And through that, that whole process, all those bad things, but especially their conviction and their obedience, God did something amazing. He allowed Daniel and his three friends to become a part of the king's inner circle to have proximity and influence with the most evil, but also the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And that's just a little appetizer uh, for where the story goes after this. This week, we're going to see the main character of the books. If you were listening last week, who's the main character of the book? It's not Daniel. It's God. Good. Yeah, we're going to see God not just rescue a few of his followers, although he does that, But through another impossible situation, he is going to use the courage, the faith, the obedience of one person to actually begin to change and shift um, the history of Babylon, to change, really, the known world at that time. And before we get into this, can I just ask you, do you even believe that that's possible anymore? That God could use the faith and obedience of one man, of one woman, to change history? That in the midst of this time where the hostility is just growing and Christians are getting pushed farther and farther to the margins of society, do you believe that God can use the obedience and faith of one person to change the current? And i got to be honest with you, on my good days, yes. But on my bad days, it just seems like that's a stretch, right? It's getting harder and harder to believe that God could use the obedience and faith of one person to change this little chunk of world history that we find ourselves in. Well, if you doubt it, the answer to that question is, can God still do that? It's found in Daniel chapter 2. Let's jump in it into it. In verse 1, it says this, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So this chapter picks up right after Daniel and his friends graduate from Babylonian University. 
and God's placed them in the proximity, the inner circle of the king. And once they're there, once all the chess pieces are there, he begins to work in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar starts having dreams and not just normal dreams. Like these are seriously disconcerting dreams. How many of you have bad dreams often, nightmares? I looked up the most common nightmares. How many of you have ever had a dream where all your teeth fall out? Anyone? Okay. I thought I was a weirdo for not having that. How about uh, showing up with no clothes on to school or work? Yes. You don't have to. You guys just aren't admitting it. It's fine. The camera can't see you. You can raise your hands. Uh, I don't have those types of normal dreams. I've actually, I have recurring stress dreams, and it usually happens. This is a true story. A Saturday night before, like, Sunday morning service, and when I was a worship leader, I used to be a worship leader. They were desperate back then, but I used to be. And uh, I would have a dream every single Saturday night that I would be on stage with my guitar and my pedals and the microphone, and the downbeat would start, and I'd hear the keyboard, and I'd think, oh, no, where's my music? And I wouldn't have my music or my lyrics. And so I'd have to sneak off stage and go look for the chord charts back behind the stage or in my office at the Raleigh campus. And then when I started teaching, this is a truth. You're not going to believe me. This is absolutely true. I've had the same dream five times in a row. And it's a dream where uh, they, the, the elders and my bosses and the leaders are back there behind the stage watching me. And they're putting me to the test to see how well I concentrate when I preach. And it's not that I don't have notes. This is a true story. You know um, our first impressions team, the team that like welcomes people in and parks cars and stuff, amazing group. And you know our tech team, the team that's in charge of making sure this microphone works and the lights and the slides and all that sort of stuff. Well, in my dream, for some reason, uh, there's a Nerf war going on between first impressions and the tech team. So there's people like barrel rolling for cover and there's darts like hitting my manuscript and the elders and stuff are like, come on, can you really do this? And then this has happened three out of five times. I won't share her name, but there's a certain volunteer and you go to the Raleigh campus, you'll know her. Uh, but three times in these dreams, she's shown up and apparently in my dream for some reason, uh, she's a very, very good jazzercise teacher. And She's forgotten to practice for her jazzercise class later that afternoon. So not only is there a Nerf war going on, but she's brought a big screen TV in the middle aisle and she's practicing all her jazzercise moves. This is true, I promise. Five times I've had that dream. These psychologists want to get a hold of me. I already have one. It's dark in there, all right? So <laughs> Neb was not having dreams like those, okay? Not silly dreams. These are significant dreams. So significant that he's losing sleep because he can't figure out the meaning. And I find this so encouraging. I mean, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the one who took over the promised land, who took over Jerusalem, God's people. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar who disrespected and desecrated the temple. This is the same evil Nebuchadnezzar who kidnapped all these kids and put them through this indoctrination to come over to the dark side. And God's still working even in his heart. Isn't that cool? He doesn't know it's God pursuing him. He doesn't know it's God chasing after him. But think about it. No human being would, able to, would be able to have a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar with his guard down. And like the privacy of the castle or the royal rooms. But God could. God could. And that's so encouraging. You know, that, that's different than every other religion. Every other religion is about you being good enough to get to God. Or are you doing all these things to be made acceptable to God? But only the God of Jesus. He's the only God that chases after us and pursues us and is patient with us. And you may not know this, but this is still happening today. This true story. I have uh, two friends that used to be underground missionaries in some dangerous places. 
in the Middle East especially, and they were sent there to track down and see if there was any underground church movement there. They thought maybe a dozen here in this city or a dozen people here. No, there's literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It just takes years to be uh, given the trust and let in. Well, they both told me about this phenomenon that happened to them a few times where uh, Muslims all across the world apparently are having dreams. I think I'm weird, but I'm not. And in this dream, there's always a man in white, and he says different things, but he stands before them. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the King of Kings. I'm the Lord of Lords. Follow me. And so the people wake up from their dream, and it's very significant. And so they risk their life to find Christians in that area. And lots of missionaries are getting knocks on their door, people saying, hey, are you, are you the Jesus teacher woman? Are you, are you the Jesus teacher man? Because I had this dream, and I need you to introduce me to him so I can follow him. So they open up their Bible, and they become Christ followers. I actually looked it up this week. Uh, in 2018, there was a study of 600 Muslim converts from all over the world. Guess how many of them had dreams? 25% said the reason they're Christ followers, because God gave them a dream. But see, a dream in and of itself is not enough because in a dream, God can introduce himself to them. But when they wake up, they need a Christ follower, someone with the Bible or that knows about Jesus to introduce them to the, the Jesus as he really is, to, to tell them what's needed for salvation, repentance and faith. And it's the same with the king. He needed someone to explain this dream. This is why God waited until chapter 2. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar was not in the habit of like vacationing in the desert of Israel around people that believed in the one true God. So if he wouldn't bring himself to people that believed in God, God would bring him three, maybe four God believers and put them in that presence. Now listen, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that when God moves you to a new position or a new neighborhood, or a new city, or a new stage of life. That's God positioning you. He's, he's definitely doing something inside of you, but you better watch out because he's probably up to something in the new faces and the new people that you see in that new environment. When God moves you, you should always be thinking, hey, God, who are you moving me to? When you get fired or you get promoted or sent to a different state for your job or you have to move to take care of an ill relative, odds are that is God putting you in proximity with someone that he's about to do a work in. And by the way, this Love Your School initiative, amazing. We're so stinking excited about it. But it's no accident that your kids go to the school that they go to. And it's no accident they have the, the principal and the vice principal and the teachers and the teacher assistants that they have. That's God placing you in proximity of someone that needs the encouragement and the love of Jesus and just to experience the goodness of God. And if you're a homeschool mom or you're a homeschool dad or you volunteer at a, whole school, a homeschool co-op, you are included in this initiative as well. We love you. We're thankful for you. We want to pour into you as well. Right, so, so God's moved Daniel to, to reach this, this, this evil king. But we have to ask, right, what was it about this dream that was so unsettling? Well, you can read about the contents way down in verse 31. Read this with me. The king saw this great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and its arms of silver its middle and its thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. 
And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. I don't care who you are. That's a weird dream. That's like what you see after seven burritos before you go to bed, right? It's weird. And we're going to get to the meaning of it. But look at Neb's response. He says this, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And you can keep reading those verses. But all the magicians say, well, tell us what's in the dream. And the king's like, well, that's, that's what I can't do. And he gives them an ultimatum. He says, this is too significant to just share. What I'm asking you to do is you need to tell me exactly what I dreamed, and then you have to interpret it as well. you got to give me the contents and the meaning. And if you do, good news. I'm going to give you riches. I'll give you new houses. If you can't, no big deal. I'm going to kill all of you and rip you limb from limb is what he says. And that's not hyperbole. The Babylonians, they were brutal. They had this practice of taking the tops of four trees and bringing them all the way down to the ground and tying them with rope and then tying a person's arms, two arms and two legs to those treetops and then letting them go and four pieces. This is it. This is a crazy dude. Now, we don't know why he did this. It could be that the dream was so scary he doesn't really remember the contents of it. It could be that he inherited these magicians, these Chaldeans from the previous king, like his dad, and he's like, well, that's an easy way to clean house. We don't know why he's doing it, but we do know the wise men don't even try to accomplish this task. It's like, this is impossible. It says this in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is too difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And they don't know how spot on they are. No man could do this. It's impossible. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. Not the Babylonian gods, goddesses, but the God of Daniel. Well, this didn't go very well. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This includes Daniel and his three friends. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be, uh, wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. How'd you like that knock on your door? What's up, Daniel? Hey, how's it going? Ah, I know Bill from the dreams and visions department. He couldn't really decipher this nightmare the king had, so we have to, well, we're, we're here to murder you. Not really. We're going to tear you into four pieces, but we're pretty sure that's going to kill you. And how, how would you react to that? I freak out. I close the door and jump out a window and run as far away as possible. I would, I would cry. I would panic. But look at how David reacts. Look at how he responds. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards who had gone to kill all the wise men of Babylon, he says to Arioch, hey, why is the decree of the king so urgent? So Arioch fills him in. He made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. He's like, okay, interesting. You remember me? What's going on? Okay. Can I get on the king's day planner like next Tuesday? That's awesome. How about tomorrow? That's fine. He doesn't freak out. He's as cool as a cucumber. He's as cool as the other side of the pillow, right? He, and this is an impossible situation because only three outcomes are possible. He does nothing, and he says goodbye to living in like one piece of a body. 
Or he fakes it. He's like, ah, I think you dreamed this. And then he dies as well because he'll get it wrong. Or God does a miracle. And I love this. Standing right there at the door, right after he's opened it, being filled on the, his first thought, his gut level reaction was, oh, I guess it's miracle time. And it's here that I just got stuck when I was preparing this sermon. I, I looked at his reaction and I just couldn't get past it. How is that how he responds? When that's not how 99% of us res respond. I'm, I got a text message today telling me my four-year-old's daycare was closed because of a power outage. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, I freaked out of that. What about staring death in the face? How can he do this when so few of us can't? And I thought about this. I think first it's because he's been there before. He's been in an impossible situation before in chapter 1. We had a choice. He could defy the king or defile himself. And he chose first. He stepped out in risky obedience. He's had to swim against the current at one point in his life. He's had to step out even though there might be consequences. And he saw God come through. So in a way, he's been in this situation before. He's got a proof of concept. He knows from personal experience that God could be trusted. That's how he reacts. Listen, if you're a Christian in private and not in public, if your Christian life doesn't affect your daily life in a way that might cost you, if you've never stepped out in risky obedience, how do you think you're going to respond when the heat gets turned up? When it's not an option to keep your faith private. So, so he responded this way because he's been there before. But I think secondly, he knows that other people have been there before as well. It's not just him, but his people. The Jewish people have been in an impossible situation hundreds of times in their history. And the written record of that, the stories that his parents would tell over him, the stories that he's, he's read when, in his youth, they're not just in his head, but they're in his heart. So that when he gets to knock on the door, he's like, oh, oh, this, this is normal for people that follow God, right? Because Abraham got the same knock. Hey, Abraham, you're 90. Go out into the desert. I'm going to give you a bunch of kids. He's like, I'm 90. I know. All right, the Israelites, I'm going to free you. I'm going to release you from slavery in Egypt. Where should we go? To a dead end right by the sea there. Okay. I walk through on dry land. David, all these powerful warriors can't take on Goliath. I want you to. All right, where's the sword? I don't have that. Here's a few rocks and a sling. These were impossible situations, and God came through. And Daniel, who's, what, 14, 15 years old at this time, says, I don't know a whole lot, but one thing I do know is that God can be trusted. He did it back then. He can do it again. In fact, this whole dream interpretation thing, he knew for a fact God could do that. He did that three times in Genesis 40 and 41 with Joseph. And he's thinking, man, if he can interpret the dream, it's not that much harder for him to give me the content of the dream. But see, it's, it's because Daniel was so steeped in the faithfulness of his God to his people and in his own life that he could meet this crisis with courage and with faith and with steadiness and with hope. I said, write this down. Remember God's faithfulness in the past so you can move forward with courage in the present. Remember God's faithfulness in the past so you can move forward with courage in the present. You know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? It's do not fear. Do not fear. You know what the second most repeated command in the Bible is? It's remember. Remember. And I don't think it's an accident that those are the two most repeated commands because they go together. 
And this is a skill that we need to develop because when crisis hits, it's so easy to just get tunnel vision, isn't it? And all we see is the present. And all we see is the danger. And all we see is the unknown. And all we see is the hundred different ways that this could go wrong. But we need to develop this habit of taking a step back and allowing God to fill our vision. Allowing his faithfulness to fill our eyes. Listen, when your marriage is falling apart again, and that D word of divorce has reared its ugly head again, and you just had your last fight of the marriage again, you need to take a step back and remember God's faithfulness and his power to redeem and restore relationships and look back and remember, hey, he's, he's, he's saved my marriage from the brink before. He brought love and intimacy and respect back before. He fixed what we broke before. If he did it, then he can do it again. Maybe you've fallen off the wagon again. Maybe you've given into a temptation or an addiction again. Maybe you have to start your sobriety over at day zero. Again, you need to take a step back. Don't give up hope and say, man, this is a patient, graceful, forgiving God. He's forgiven me dozens of times in the past. He can do it again. He helped me make it a day or a week or maybe a handful of years without that addiction. He can do it again, you see? You look back on all the ways that God's been faithful to you in the past, and what you'll see is your faith rising up to meet whatever the current situation has. And that's what Daniel does. He meets the impossible present with faith. And he says, hold on a second. Dude, who wants to kill me? Set me up with a meeting. And he goes to his friends, Rakshak and Benny, and he says, hey, prayer meeting immediately. And sure enough, what do you think happens? God comes through, right? Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king its interpretation. And that's what happens. He goes in front of the king. He says, basically, hey, that dream that you had, Neb, it is important. It's significant. You were right. But you were just looking for wisdom and revelation from the wrong places. No offense, no man could give you this, and none of your gods or goddesses could, but my God could, and my God has. And he reveals to the king what the meaning of the dream was. You ready? Look at verse 37. It says, you, O king, the king of kings, you are the head of gold. Remember the statue? Gold, iron, bronze. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. That's important. And in the days of those kings, skip down to verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human man, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. You know what's crazy? History shows us that this dream actually happened in reality, that its interpretation was sure, that its dream was certain, 
The gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, uh, 99% of commentators and historians would agree that they represent the Babylonians, and then the Persians, the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So 99% agree that doesn't stop the 1% from writing 36 books on crazy interpretations about this every year. But what happened years after this dream is the Persians did arise and they did take over Babylon. And then eventually the Persians were taken over by the Greeks in this decisive battle fought by Alexander the Great. Eventually that kingdom divided and it was soon taken over by Rome. And Rome eventually became the biggest and powerful world power that history had ever seen. They would just topple kings. Their influence spread over the entire world. They would take over whole lands. They would impose its rule and its influence wherever it went. And just when Rome was at its height, when it had its most power and its most influence, there's this little teenage girl in a backwater town in Israel. And she was a virgin. And an angel visited her one day. And listen to what the angel said. Luke 1, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, what we know on this side of the history is what Daniel never knew, that Jesus was the stone that God cut out. He was the one that would initiate this everlasting kingdom, and it would be bigger, and it would be stronger, and it would be longer lasting than any other world power because it would be a spiritual one. See, about 33 years after that angel visited Mary, when the Roman leaders were nailing that little baby turned into a, a rabbi on the cross, it looked like the statue had crushed the stone. But the opposite was the case. Because that crucified king got out of that grave three days later and initiated a worldwide, spiritual, eternal kingdom where people from every tribe and nation and tongue could enter. And slowly but surely that kingdom grew from 11 or 12 followers to hundreds to thousands to millions, now into the billions, and that stone's become a mountain that's filled the entire earth, and it's outlasted every single kingdom that came before it, and it will outlast every single kingdom that comes after it. And you and I are a part of it. It's called the kingdom of God, and one day our king's coming back, and he's going to reign and rule in the new heavens and the new earth, and it shall never end. The dream was certain, and the interpretation was sure. God did what he said he would do. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. But he knew that interpretation came from somewhere that just man couldn't make that up. So it makes an impression on him. Look at what he says. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, listen to this, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And if you read the next verse, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got a pretty sweet job as well, right? Now, when you get to the end of this chapter, you realize that that dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't just for him, although it was for him. 
It took a step in humbling him. It's pretty cool as we go throughout the next few weeks, come back. God's actually going to finally get a hold of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. But he's humbled a little bit here. But as you get to the end of this chapter, you realize that that dream, it was just as much for Nebuchadnezzar as it was for David, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all the other exiles in Babylon, and their parents living in the ruins of Jerusalem. And I think every single Christian in the West should read through this weird chapter like two, three, four, five times a week. And as you do it, what you'll see is it gives you such tremendous perspective on what we're experiencing right now. It corrects our vision. That, and that, that sight, that perspective, just has this power to change us. When you look around the world, what do you see right now? You know what I see? I see loneliness. I see anxiety. I see depression. I see fear, and I see anger, and I see hate, and I see rage. I was listening to this presentation by an NYU marketing professor this week, and he says that marketing's completely changed in the past 10 or 15 years. It used to be that sex sells, but now you can see that anywhere, and it's completely changed. Now they know that fear and anger are the things that sell. That's the things that gets advertising dollars. And so a lot of the media outlets, a lot of the shows, all this sort of stuff, they take every single story. They do everything we can and twist it to make us do two things. One, completely be afraid of the future, be in fear of the future, and two, to hate each other and to be angry at other people for bringing us to that future because they know if they can keep us fearful, we'll keep checking back in. If they can keep us angry, we want to feed that anger. That means more clicks, which means more car commercials they get to sell, more insurance commercials. And that fear and that hate, I think in this weird way, is a part of this image of God inside each one of us. It's just twisted. It's just bent. It's just broken a little bit. Because, see, every single one of us wants for good to defeat evil. We want to be a force for good. We want to see evil defeated. But when you take God out of the equation, who does that leave? It's us. So it's real easy to divide humans up into good and evil. The evil people are leading us to the scary future. The good people are trying to stop it. And guess what side most people think they're on? The good side. And every single, people that, every single person that disagrees with us, they're the bad guys. And it just seems like, man, the future's so uncertain. And if these numbskulls could just get it together, we could fix what's broken in this world. And if that's your worldview, no wonder there's anxiety. And there's fear and there's stress and there's despair and there's division and there's anger and there's, heart, and there's hate. But see, according to this book and the other 65 of them, that's not what's going on. For those of us that believe in the God that gave this dream all those years ago, listen, we know what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? It's something called sin. It's sin. Someone once wrote, Really smart, G.K. Chesterton. He was a, a Catholic English theologian. And they wrote into the newspaper, G.K., love to hear idea, what at root, what's, what's the foundation of all that's wrong with the world? And G.K. wrote him a really short letter and said, Dear Mr. Bill, I am. Sincerely, G.K. See, Christians know what's wrong with the world. It's sin. And how do you deal with sin? Where do you start? You start right here. Christians don't point fingers at others. They say, you know what's wrong with the world? It's my sin, and it's my selfishness, and it's my idolatry. 
and it's my twisted motives, and it's my lack of love, and it's my lack of patience, right? And when everyone gets to that point where they say, what's wrong with the world? Well, it's my sin. That's how you know the kingdom's come, you know? And then once we deal with the log in our own eyes, then we can deal with the speck in other people's eyes. But we've been so quick to point, 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 and never deal with what's going on here. One of the things that I believe God's calling us to as Christians in the West, yes, for courage. Yes, he's calling us to influence. Yes, he's calling us to boldly proclaim truth. But I think just as importantly is something the Bible calls repentance. And I think public repentance as well. To get down on our knees and say, Father, we've made minor things main things. We've made humans into demons. We've hated the ones that you've come to love and rescue. And I think just saying that out loud would give us a bit more influence than we've had in the past few years. There's lots of reasons why people don't like Christ followers. And it's not all our fault, but a portion of it is. How much good and healing would come from us saying, hey, I didn't, I didn't handle that well. Hey, I posted something on social media and I realized I was pursuing a godly goal but in a very ungodly way. I'm sorry I said that. That was pride. That was arrogance. It wasn't love. It wasn't humility. I go a long way with dealing what's wrong with the world, right? So that's what's wrong. What's going to fix this sin problem? Well, where do we point? We can only point to Jesus, not government, not education, not science. You can't legislate away a spiritual problem. So guess what? We don't put a whole lot of hope in those things. That doesn't mean we don't try to fix the world. We care for the widows and the orphan. We feed those that need food. We, we visit those that are in, in prison. We, we vote for things that line up with God's word, but we don't think for a second that we're going to be the ones to fix this. And you know what? That's why we can have hope because it doesn't depend on us. We know for a fact that God himself is going to step into human history and make all things new and institute his kingdom once and last forever. And if you were to just read this chapter over and over and over again, what do you think would happen to that anger that you feel? That fear about the future, gone. And what you'd be left with is hope and courage and faith and love and purpose. Listen, listen. The stone has crushed the statue. It's grown into a mountain that's filled the entire earth. And it will never go away. The king of kings will always be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that one thought doesn't just change the way we look at the world, but changes the way that we live in the world. You see that? Father, would you help us see this? Father, would you bring us back to that faith? Father, we do repent. In my own way as well, Father, I... I I need to repent as well for not loving those that you've sent me to love, for judging those that you've sent me to pursue. Father, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? Would you give us a clean and a fresh start? Father, we pray that you would give us man, just this, this settled assurance that you've been faithful in the past. You will be faithful in the future. Thank you, Jesus that you came and pursued us and set up a kingdom without our help and you graciously invite us to it, would that be our center of peace and of rest and of hope and of love and of joy and of purpose? To you be all things and all the glory. And it's in your name we pray. 
Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.